So maybe like me, you're going through some Pastor John withdrawal. So two weeks ago, we had Dr. Todd Miles, a seminary professor. He gave us a great academic uh, presentation on um, the Holy Spirit and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Last week, we had horse veterinarian Andy Denome calling us to evangelize, and he had his, his horse sense that he presented that with. And today, we have me. Um, so um, you may be saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Pastor John, come. So we've been talking about, we, we heard um, Dennis share about putting on and putting off. That's what we'll be focusing on today in verses 12 through 17 in Colossians 3. I want you to think about a time that you wore special clothes to an event. Maybe a job interview, maybe a first day of school, maybe a first date. I can recall my high school reunion, and I desperately wanted to prove to others that I wasn't a nerd. So I got a nice new set of clothes and wore them to that event, and you can ask Heidi if it really worked or not. So you can tell a lot about someone by their clothes. A man was dressed in shabby clothes at the country club that he owned, and the security guards pulled him aside, not recognizing who he was. Your Bibles in Colossians 3 might have the heading, Put on the New Self. In verses 5 through 9, we're to put to death a variety of sinful practices. In verses 12 to 17, we're putting on a new set of clothes, even better than your best outfit that you wore to a job interview. Warren Wiersbe describes that we're exchanging grave clothes for grace clothes. And that's what we'll focus on today. My hope and prayer is that God will speak to you from this text, that you'll become sanctified further in your Christian walk. Specifically, we'll look at putting on the graces of Christ, these articles of clothing in verses 12 through 14, putting on the beautiful graces of the Christian life. We'll look at the peace of Christ in verse 15, the word of Christ in verse 16, and the name of Christ in verse 17. So let's pray that God would enlighten us this morning. Our Father, giver of all good gifts, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, and that through it we can be made competent and complete for every good work. As Isaiah wrote, we ask that your word goes out and that it does not return empty, but that it shall accomplish your purpose. Please use my stammering lips through the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to your body. In your son's precious name we pray for your glory. Amen. Let's read again Colossians 3, 12 through 17 that we're going to focus today. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in the opening line, verse 12, we see put on then. And then is kind of like the word therefore. So we have to think about what was going on before that we see the word then. In verse 1, we're raised with Christ. In verse 3, we're told you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
So in view of what God has done through Jesus for the believer, these are the attitudes and actions that God expects in response. We then see the word chosen, chosen. If you talk with me when I first came to Sun Valley and asked, you know, did God, you know, does God choose people? I would have maybe said, yeah, you know, I think God chooses people. And over time, I would say that I have a more, a more resounding yes, that God chooses us. And this is seen throughout scripture, not just in Colossians 3. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. In John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. As you meet in small groups this week, you'll go through some more scripture passages as well, potentially. Um, and I'll go through some of them to just to see how much that we see that we are chosen throughout scripture. Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, God chose you as the first fruits to be obtained. To this he called you. 2 Timothy 1, 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, to those who are elect. Acts 13.48, as we're appointed to eternal life. Romans 11.5, a remnant chosen by grace. So we, so we see that we are chosen throughout the whole of scripture and this, some have described as a sacred secret. We don't really intimidate people with this and say, hey, I've been chosen. But we invite people to repent of their sin and turn to Christ. And when we are chosen, we are elected for service. What are you doing with being chosen? John MacArthur has an amazing sentence in one of his commentaries about being chosen. He writes, the doctrine of human election crushes human pride, exalts God, produces joy and gratitude to the Lord, grants eternal privileges and assurance, promotes holiness, and makes one bold and courageous. For one who has been chosen by God for eternal life has no need to fear anything or anyone. So we are chosen. The next phrase we see is being holy and beloved. We are holy or set apart. Um, we're called to, to be doing holy things unlike the, the, the groom who decides to run off with the maid of honor instead of the bride. Because we are called and we are holy and set apart, we need to be living Christian lives and running away from the world and flesh. We see that we're beloved, that God loves us. And as a believer grows in his love for God, he grows in his desire to obey God. And we see that we're forgiven. So the Colossians, like Israel, they were chosen and loved. And these things add up to grace because we are chosen, we're set apart, we're loved, we're forgiven. We're to put on these beautiful garments, um, these garments of grace of the Christian life. We're compelled to put on these grace clothes. Being joined to Jesus is the foundation of the new life and enables changes in our behavior. Ethical behavior comes as a byproduct of putting to death the old and living in Christ, not from dutifully following a rigorous set of rules. So I want to make sure that you get this straight. Don't confuse being moral with being a Christian. Because we are saved, we then put on these grace clothes. 
All of these garments were perfectly worn by Christ. Um, our righteous behavior is to match our righteous position that we now have in Christ. We have an outward manifestations of an inward transformation. Um, and all these garments can only be worn in community with others. I met with a patient this last week and near the end of the 25 or 30 minutes I spent with her, she said that was the most she talked with someone this calendar year. So we're called to be in community with others as we wear these grace clothes. Um, and the verb that's used here to clothe ourselves is a present imperative, that we're to put these grace clothes on and keep putting them on. The next phrase we see here is compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. This could be described as tender mercies. Pastor John spoke earlier this year about how this view of emotions, that kind of the heart was viewed as really being in the gut. This could be translated as the bowels of compassion that there's this deep gut level visceral feeling. Maybe you kind of feel this when you're nervous about something, you have these butterflies in your stomach. And our compassion is to be constant. It's not something that's, something that's to be turned on or off like a TV. It's to be a constant for us. Compassion in the ancient world um, was uncommon. That if you were old or if you were sickly or mentally ill, you were often discarded. If you got run over by an ox cart, you might be kind of pushed out to the wall of the city and just kind of hope that maybe you did okay. But Christianity later brought compassion, and it still does. William Barclay wrote, it is not too much to say that everything that has been done for the aged, the sick, the weak in body and in mind, the animal, the child, the woman has been done under the inspiration of Christianity. The gospel brings with it sympathy and tenderness of heart. In Matthew 9:36 we read about Jesus, that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. In Luke 6.38, uh, we're told to be merciful even as your father is merciful. In James 5.11, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Believers should not be indifferent to suffering, but should be concerned to meet other people's needs. So who are the crowds that God is calling you to to extend compassion to? Who are the individuals that God is calling you to be compassionate with? So compassionate hearts is the first article, article of clothing we're to put on. The second article of clothing is kindness. Kindness could be described as gracious sensitivity. Gracious sensitivity toward those that, that is triggered by genuine care for their feelings and desires. Grace and goodness towards others that pervade the whole person, mellowing all that may be harsh. We are saved because of God's kindness, and therefore we now show kindness to others. David showed kindness to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was crippled. In 2 Samuel 9, 7, David said, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the, all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. We read about the kindness of the Good Samaritan, which was countercultural. Psalm 34, 8, we're familiar with that verse, Taste and see that the Lord is, is good, can also be translated, Taste and see that the Lord is kind. Romans 11:12 12, that we're to continue in his kindness. So who have you shown kindness to? And who knew can you extend kindness to? The next article of clothing to put on is humility. Humility or humbleness of mind. Back in the ancient world, the goal of many people was to attain honor and to rise in the pecking order. And humility really had a negative connotation 
in the classical Greek, and it took Christianity to elevate it. There really wasn't a, a good word for uh, humility, that is what translators tell us. Humility, John MacArthur describes, is the perfect antidote to self-love that poisons human relationships. What if I, at clinic, said, hey, enough about your chest pain, let's talk about me. Would that be very humble? You need to have a proper estimate of oneself and the will of God. Think of others first and not yourself. Um, in Romans 12.3, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Romans 12.10, to outdo one another in showing honor. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Matthew 18.4, whoever humbles himself like this child is, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We see this beautiful passage in John 13 of the washing of the disciples' feet. And Jesus said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. In James 4, verses 6 and 10, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. See, humility is a proper garment that we're to put on for every believer. And it's tough to determine if we have that. If we think we've reached humility, we probably haven't. But it's a garment we need to be striving to put on. The next garment we read about is meekness. Meekness or gentleness. This can be described as power un under control. That you don't have to fly off the handle, even if, if you think you have the right to do that. We think of things in our world that are powerful. It could be a colt, a, a young horse, and that power being channeled by the rider. Think about maybe a medicine that I might prescribe, uh, that I'm going to choose something narrow that's going to specifically help someone. The willingness to suffer injury or insult rather to, than to inflict such hurts is meekness. Matthew 5, 5, and the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the opposite of being out of control. It is not weakness, but rather supreme self-control empowered by the Spirit. In James 5.23, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. A humble and gentle attitude that is patiently submissive in every offense while having no desire for revenge or retribution. We see meekness in the New Testament with submitting to the will of God, with being teachable, and considering others. Um, meekness should mark the believer at all times. And as an elder, it's something that I need to exhibit if I'm restoring someone who's sinning. I need to exhibit meekness in that. Um, if I'm doing apologetics or defending the, the faith, that also needs to be done with meekness or gentleness. So how are you doing with this article of clothing of meekness? The next article of clothing you put on with these grace clothes is patience. Patience or long-suffering, this literally means long-temper. So putting up with provoking people or circumstances without retaliating. There might be times where we can have good anger occasionally, and that could be a sign of holy character. But often our anger, we get angry quickly at the wrong things for the wrong reasons. And one of the antidotes for, for anger is thankfulness. Thankfulness for what God has done drives that anger. Uh, we see that Jesus epitomized um, patience. He was the opposite of quick anger, of resentment, of getting revenge. Colossians 1.11 may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. This is the attitude one has during trials and during difficult circumstances. We see in several passages 
um, God's patience. Unfortunately, because God is patient, we are saved. Romans 2.4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 1 Timothy 1.16, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. 2 Peter 3.15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, be patient with them. Um, in his patience, he postpones the, the day of retribution. God is patient in allowing people to come to repentance. If it wasn't for God's patience, no one would be saved. The next article clothing to put on is bearing with one another. Bearing with one another to hold up, to hold back. God holds back his judgment. In Romans 3.25, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. There's an interesting story I read about bearing, uh, bearing with one another, and it had to do with airplanes and smoking on airplanes. So we see these lights down planes saying no smoking, but there was a time where you could smoke on planes. And I guess if you wanted to smoke a cigar, you need to kind of have permission of the person you're sitting next to to do that. So back in the day, there was a man who was trying to light up a cigar, and the flight attendant ran over and informed that he needed to, ha- needed to be okay with the person sitting next to him. So the flight attendant asked the woman sitting next to him, do you object to his smoking? And the woman said, I absolutely detest cigars. Um, so the flight attendant kind of went up front and found an empty seat, and there was a young man there, and he was agreeable to having this older man come up with a cigar, so that a man with a, the cigar-smoking man moved up front. Um, and then that woman who had been sitting next to him turned to the flight attendant and said, I've been married to that man for 30 years, and I still can't, I still can't stand his awful cigars. So we're called to bear with one another. This next article of clothing to put on is forgiving. Forgiving. And this is the logical result of all that Paul has written so far. Mutual forbearing must extend to mutual forgiving. When you don't forgive someone, it leads to feelings of malice, a desire to harm others or to see others suffer in ill will. And often that can boil up into additional sin. Commentator Warren Wearsby wrote, forgiveness opens the heart to the fullness of the love of God. The very instant we have a complaint and we think of maybe writing something down to put in that complaint box, we should forgive that person in our hearts. Maybe that complaint box should be over a paper shredder instead. Maybe if we're calling to make a complaint and going through some automated phone tree, we should press five to be disconnected instead. As the Lord has forgiven you, um, we need to forgive others. Because Christ is the model of forgiveness, he's forgiven all of our sins totally. Believers must be willing to forgive others. We see this in other parts of Colossians as, as well. In Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 2.13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We read in Matthew 18 about the man who's forgiven the 10,000 talents. And it pictures the generous, compassionate forgiveness of God. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So those who seek the forgiveness of God must be ready to forgive others. Have we not received forgiveness in far greater measure? that we will ever extend to others.
So how are you doing with forgiveness? Is Santa Valley Church a gracious, mutually forgiving fellowship? And the last article of clothing we see um, in verse um, 14 is putting on love. Putting on love using this clothing motif is like a belt. It ties all the other virtues together. Love is the most important quality in the believer's life. Love one another sums up verses 12 and 13. If you try to practice verses 12 and 13 without love, it's legalism. When love rules in our lives, it unites all these special virtues so there is beauty and harmony. Supernatural love poured into the hearts of believers is the adhesive of the church. We see that in several verses being the adhesive. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Um, in Philippians um, 2, 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Romans 5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God's love for us has been lavishly poured out to the point of overflowing within our hearts. Um, so love is to be an active expression, thus being justified by faith. Love is the beauty of the believer and adhesive of the church. So how are you doing, Sun Valley Church, with putting on these garments of grace and what, what Dennis challenged us before with putting off sin? Let's talk lastly about these three other priorities, these more priorities, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. So in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So when the believer has lost his inner peace, he has disobeyed God. And rule in this verse can be thought of as an athletic term. Some of you are long-suffering Mariners fans and Pippins fans. And we think about the, the term an umpire. And the peace of God is like an umpire. Let the peace of Christ be an umpire in your heart amidst the conflicts of life. Let it decide what is right. Let it be your counselor. Let the peace of Christ be your arbitrator. And beware of false peace, peace of heart that doesn't equal the peace of God. When a Christian loses the peace of God, he begins to go off in directions that are out of the will of God. But when there is peace in the heart, there'll be peace on the lips, peace with others in the church. Peace should characterize relationships in the body Peace is relational. And I want to uh, contrast the peace of God and what we read here with the peace with God. So read about um, um, peace with God in, in Romans 5.1, that being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have a new relationship. We have this new external objective reality when we have peace with God. And then in Philippians 4.7, we have the peace of God. Because of that new relationship we have with God, we can have this inner calm, this inner sense of peace. First um, Corinthians six seventeen and eighteen can be an example. It is our union with the Lord that compels us to purity. So, are you aligned the peace of God to be the umpire in your life? The peace of God. Next is the Word of Christ in verse sixteen. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the word of God always magnifies Jesus. It gives life, it sustains, it strengthens. The word of God will transform our lives if we permit it to dwell in us richly. To dwell can be thought of as to feel at home with God's word. If we have experienced the grace and peace of Christ, then the word of Christ will dwell at home in our hearts. The truths of scripture should permeate every aspect of the believer's life and govern every thought, word, and deed. Um, this was written to this church by um, the Colossians. We could this, think of this phrase as being written to dwell among you, the word of Christ to dwell among you. And there's a relationship between our knowledge of the Bible and our expression of worship and song. I'm very thankful that the songs that we sing here at Sun Valley are very scripture based. And it's a very dangerous thing to try to separate our praise of God from the word of God. If the word of God isn't in our hearts, we can't sing from our hearts. Um, we sing because we have God's grace in our hearts. It takes grace to sing when we are in pain or when circumstances are against us. Um, it talks here in verse uh, 16 about hymns and, uh, sorry, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And psalms could be from the psalms. Hymns can be other parts of scripture put to song. And spiritual songs might be other songs that address testimony. Um, to sing only elementary songs of the faith is to rob uh, oneself of spiritual enrichment. Um, so the word of God should be dwelling in you richly. Um, I want you to flip a few pages back to Ephesians 5. We're going to see how passages, uh, a couple of verses in Ephesians 5 relate to verse 16. So Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So in Colossians, we see that the word of Christ leads to those things. And here in Ephesians 5, we see that the Holy Spirit leads to those same things as far as psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's leading to joy. It's leading to thankfulness is leading to submission. John MacArthur writes, the word in the heart and mind is the handle by which the spirit turns the will. So there's this relationship between the word of Christ and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills the life controlled by his word. So how are you doing, Sun Valley, by filling yourself up with God's word? And the last verse we'll be looking at in Colossians, verse 17, is the name of Christ, the name of Christ. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There are few exhortations or commands in scripture that are more comprehensive than this one. In the ancient world, a man's name was of utmost importance. And as Christians, we bear the name of Jesus. We belong to Jesus, we identify with Jesus. In his name, we have authority. We have authority to pray. All that we say and do should be associated with the name of Jesus. Bearing the name of Jesus is a great privilege and responsibility. Whatever we do in the name of Christ ought to be joined in thanksgiving. And Paul wrote this letter from prison. He wrote this with thanksgiving. So this command means that we're to act consistently with who he is and what he wants. 1 Corinthians 10.31 
So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The simplest, most basic rule of thumb for living the Christian life is to do everything in the name of Jesus. Our actions must say that, that Jesus is and does exactly what he claims. When confronted with a challenge with a moral issue, we can ask, what is a Christian thing to do here? Can I do this without compromising my Christian confession? Can I do it, that is to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus, whose reputation is at stake in the conduct of his known followers? And can I thank God the Father through him for the opportunity of doing this thing? Even then, the right course of action may not be totally clear, but asking such questions honestly will commonly provide sure ethical guidance than special regulations may do. It may be easy to get around special regulations. The Pharisees certainly did that. It is less easy to get around so comprehensive a statement of Christian duty as this verse supplies. Our relationship to God should embrace and control the whole of life, not only occasions which are sometimes described as religious in the narrow sense of the word. We see in these last few verses the word thanks or thankful, how it's repeated at the ends of verses 15, 16, and 17. So we're to be putting on these grace clothes and doing these things not out of reluctance or despair or legalistic duty, but with thanks. Um, keep striving for a deeper gratitude than we have yet attained. Um, the word thankful in Greek is eucharistio, from which we get the English word eucharist, which relates to the, the Lord's Supper, a time for giving thanks. So how do we apply um, these things, these many articles of clothing that we're to be putting on? Maybe you've been elbowed by, by someone next to you along the way with this. Maybe there's different um, challenges in your life that you're realizing you need to put on certain articles of clothing more than others. Believers should so clothe themselves with Jesus that when people look at them, they see Christ. In Romans 13, 14, we're told to put on the Lord Jesus. We forgive because Christ forgave us, we see in verse 13. It is a peace of Christ that should rule or be the umpire in our hearts in verse 15. The word of Christ should dwell on us richly in verse 16. I guess I haven't used much alliteration yet today, so I'll do that now. As far as the word, what are four things to do with the word? We can heed the word, can correctly handle the word, can hide the word in our hearts, and then hold it forth. The word can be a light to others. And the name of Christ should be our identification and our authority in verse 17. So since we are united with Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have all the resources we need for holy living. But we must be spiritually motivated. Because we have experienced the grace of Christ, we want to live for him. Because we have enjoyed the peace of Christ, we want to obey him. We have been enriched by the word of Christ and identify with the name of Christ. Therefore, we want to honor and glorify him. So how can you, Sun Valley Church, be a living advertisement for God's grace and what God does in human lives by putting on these grace clothes? Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for these grace clothes we put on in response to what you have done for us. I ask you to challenge us this week with putting on compassion and kindness and meekness. You'd be working in our lives um, that we would be glorifying and pointing others to you. For those, Lord, who don't know you, I ask that they would come to relationship with you today. Um, 
to have a right relationship with you and to know you. In your name we pray, amen.